Good evening. Welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. I am your co-host, Kyle Bird. I'm Matt Parmley. Um, and today, folks, we are very excited to bring on a friend of ours we've known for a few years now. Um, and uh, it is a little surprising that it took this long for us to do something together. Um, but we have our friend, Patrick Galvin. Say Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, thank you for for being here. Um, and uh, so uh, if your name sounds familiar to people out there, um, it would probably be um, primarily because of uh, the writing you've done uh, for Toho Kingdom and Sci-Fi.com. Um, and also, of course, being one of the uh, founders, along with myself and Matt and John DeSentis, Steve Rifle, and Eric Hominick of the Kaiju Masterclass Virtual Convention. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and um, oh, and and since you are here, um, also why don't you plug uh, plug your book a little bit too? Uh, sure. So. Um, <clears throat> Uh, basically, uh, as Bert has kind of alluded to, I am a film journalist who specializes in uh, Asian cinema. Uh, I've written mostly about films from Japan, but I've also done some writing about films from uh, early 20th century China. And uh, in June of this year, I published my first book. It's called uh, Ruan Lingyu, Her Life and Career. It is a biography on a uh, Chinese film actress who was active in Shanghai during the 1920s and 30s. Uh, she uh, unfortunately died when she, when she was quite young, only 24 years old. The book documents uh, her life, uh, her career, her rise from, use a cliched phrase, rags to riches, documents the various um, events in her personal life and her professional life that you know led to her uh, young death, as well as the many political and social things that were happening in China in the early 20th century. There's a lot of uh, concurrently running stories, a lot of connective tissue that uh, runs, that runs uh, simultaneously throughout the story. Uh, the book is available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback. Um, well, I got to ask, what what drew you to that specific actress, and what made you be like, oh, I need to write a book about this person? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2018, um, I was on Turner Classic Movies, and they were playing uh, a movie called The Goddess from 1934, which stars Ruan Lingyu. It's widely recognized to be her best film, and some have argued, I think, uh, reasonably so, the best Chinese silent film ever made. 
Um, I saw the film, knew nothing about her, but I was immediately enamored uh, with her because her, her acting style was just so emotional and so natural. You know, one of, one of those people who made great acting look easy, like anybody could do it. And I was immediately curious about her. And I wa- when I was just Googling her, Googling her, trying to find out some basic information about her, and I saw she died so young, I was curious to know, like, you know, this, I was, I was in the, that, you know, starstruck, you know, fan mentality where you briefly forget that celebrities are ordinary people themselves who have, you know, their own personal troubles and whatnot. And as a fan, I was saying to myself, this woman had talent, she had fame, she had beauty, she had success. And yet she was so unhappy with her life that she chose to end it when she was 24 years old. Why, why is that? And from that basic uh, question led to me doing a lot of uh, research about her. At the time, there was an English language book about her, but it was uh, pretty short, only about 100 pages with about 60 or so devoted to the actual story of her life. And it was a good introduction to her, uh, her life. But I thought that, you know, given the impact that she had in her industry during her short time on this earth and in movies, that there had to be more to learn about her. And so over the next couple of years, I was doing a lot of research about her, learning more about uh, her and about her industry and the history of film in China in the 20th century. And uh, with no intentions of writing a book whatsoever, is mostly just to satisfy my personal curiosity. And at some point during the pandemic, uh, where we all had a little more spare time on our hands, I just thought to myself, well, hey, I've got all this information just sitting here. Why not do something productive and useful with it? And uh, that's basically where the project started. All right. Well, there you go. No, that's that's awesome. I mean, writing a book is not easy. So congrats to you, sir. Thank you. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I think Matt and I, I don't know if we were Facebook friends before or after, but uh, I remember you being one of the first people to, like, I don't know, start following us on social media. And I, I just remember the one year at G-Fest, Matt and I did a panel, and you, like, came over and introduced yourself. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we kind of been friends ever since. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that mm-hmm. was, that was eight, like, ages, what, at least it feels like ages ago. It was probably only, like, four years ago or something. But, uh, um, so, yeah, it is, uh, it is a little bit of a surprise that we've, we've finally uh, gotten you on here. Um, and... Um, people might be looking at this and thinking this is something we're doing, um, as like a tribute to Kazuki Amori, um, which I mean, I guess we kind of are, but, um, yeah, Patrick and Matt and I were talking about doing a commentary for Godzilla versus King Ghidorah months ago. Um, and you know, it just so happened that our, our availability to do it all together just happened to be like around the time that he passed away um mm-hmm. and then of course uh and and we wa- we wanted to do that with you because um uh you know you you did such a good job interviewing him uh, for the 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 2021 kaiju masterclass interview um um you know uh with with, with it was you and steve right mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so um uh, you know, and and you had had a lot of his other movies, and you you know you you sent me some of his non kaiju films, and so it was like you know if we're gonna get someone to do this, it should be Patrick, um, and uh, and also this is also lining up um, pretty nicely with um, uh, our recent kaiju masterclass um, 
stream, which went up on YouTube um, last week, um, which was a, basically a tribute and overview of Kazuki Amori on the Kaiju Masterclass YouTube, YouTube channel. Um, so even though we we uh, we aren't doing you know a virtual convention again this year, um, we we do want to have some kind of frequent, but you know it's more <laughs> less frequent than we would probably like to. But we do want to have uh, content continuous continuously being uh, um, uploaded on that channel for people. Um, so check out Patrick's overview of Amori's career, um, when you're done here with us. Um, and so. if also you're interested, uh, I also published a, um, an essay about his life and career on Toho Kingdom. It's called Kazuki Omori in Memoriam. It was published, uh, I think in late November, yep. uh, a couple, like about, I think it was like a week and a half after he passed away. Um, which again, also details like, you know, his, uh, his his work outside of you know the kaiju films, which of course we all love, and that's his like you know his inter- most internationally known work. But there was so much more to the guy's uh, career than just you know the two films he wrote and directed, and the two films that he wrote. There was yep. a lot more going on in his uh, long productive life and career. So if you want to know more information about him and those other films, you can check out the the uh, the video that Bird mentioned, as well as the article on Toho Kingdom. Yep. Um. All right. So uh, this is an audio commentary, which means you have the pleasure, listeners, uh, of uh, listening to us talk while you watch Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. So if you are going to participate in that manner, um, load up your DVD or Blu-ray. We are just starting right at the zero second mark, right at the very beginning. Um, As of this recording... The version of the movie that's available is um, on disc is from Sony, um, and it starts with the Sony logo or the TriStar logo right into TriStar Presents in the opening credits. Um, so, if this is years in the future, well, that disc is already out of print. But if you're watching this, I haven't checked it out streaming, so I don't know if Janice is the logo yet for streaming this, um, but. In the future, um, if you are starting this commentary uh, with a different disc, whether it's the Toho disc or another U.S. licensor's disc, um, just if there's a few seconds of difference in what we're talking about, then whatever. But for the most part, these commentaries, I think, uh, if you've listened to our commentaries before, can be enjoyed um, without the visual aid of the movie, um, because, uh, you know, they're very conversational. And, um, you know, we're, we're only going to be screen-specific when we don't have um, really a topic uh, uh, to discuss at that moment. So, load up to the zero timestamp on your players, video game systems, laptops, YouTube's Afghani pirate websites, uh, whatever. And, um, in, uh, I will, uh, say one, two, three, play, and we will all press play. All right. One, two, three, play. All right. So, um, yeah, let's talk about Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. Um, do you guys? I mean, let's let's start on a personal note. Do you guys remember when you first saw this movie? 
uh, very, very vividly. Um, if I, if, if can I, can I go first, Matt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that all right? <laughs> Is that all right? <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, this was actually the, the second Godzilla film that I ever saw and therefore was the first film in the franchise, make me aware that there was actually a franchise of Japanese Godzilla films. You know, in my case, uh, the first Godzilla, anything I ever saw was the, uh, not so widely liked TriStar Godzilla from the 90s. Saw that with no awareness that it was an, a Hollywood reimagining of a Japanese property. Saw Godzilla 2000 uh, two years later, walking into the theater thinking I was seeing a sequel to the TriStar film. <laughs> you were one of and those, huh? <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I was one of those people, yes. And initially thinking, okay, this is just Japan's version of what TriStar had already done. Uh, later that year, uh, I caught a double feature of this film and Godzilla vs. Moth in 1992 on the Sci-Fi Channel. Saw they came in; they both came from the early 90s, and I was like, "Oh, wait a minute!" So the Japanese Godzilla came before the Matthew Broderick Godzilla, and that was a kind of like a watershed moment. And uh, so, yes, I have a very, very vivid memory of seeing this film for the first time as a as a young person. So how and old? A very strong impact. How old would that have placed you, uh, you know, in 1998? In 1998, uh, that was, uh, well, I was seven years old when the TriStar film came out. Ah, yeah. I would have seen, I would have seen this when I was about nine or nine or so. Okay. Uh, that all right. That's my soul, by the way. Uh, yeah. Well, Matt and I are we're, a little more ancient old. than you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Matt, what about you? When was, uh, what, what, what about, what was your first experience here? Uh, so I first stumbled across, uh, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah on VHS and it was in a Best Buy. And of course I had to have it and then immediately went home and, and watched, uh, the dub. And it was, um, you know, at that point I'd only seen Godzilla versus Biolante and, and Godzilla hold on, we, we have to pause yeah. just to note that the, uh, the English language opening credits here misspelled Kuchi Kawakita's name. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yes matt talk i'm sorry continue talking about uh your first time viewing this uh this 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 cinematic treasure uh with special effects directed by kopichi kawakita continue Kop- sir. <laughs> uh yeah anyway it, it was just i mean I, obviously as a, as a kid i definitely enjoyed it but i will say the the dub uh which is terrible really took me out of it compared to some of the other godzilla dubs that you know from from my childhood yeah. Um, well, I think both of you probably have uh, pretty common experiences for people of you know our ages, um, both older fans and younger fans, people that predate the 98 movie and people that became fans, uh, younger people that were born after 1998, I don't think really realize that that movie did, in fact, turn a whole generation of kids onto the Japanese stuff like Patrick. Um, and, you know, that that's one of the reasons, you know, I, I think that movie's terrible. But, you know, as I get older, you know, I'm just, you know, I, you know, I, I don't live to crap on it like other people, uh, you know, because... Every generation has their Godzilla, and, you know, if people discover it with some crazy, messed up, awful Hollywood movie, you know, so be it. Um, But, uh, so, and then Matt, of course, has the experience of probably a lot, most people my age, where they first noticed it in uh, 98 when they were released on VHS here. Um, I've talked about this a little bit before, so I'm not going to, you know, uh, repeat, you know, a, a, a story uh, for like the hundredth time 
Um, so Patrick is a TriStar Godzilla slash Heisei kid. Matt and I are, you know, Showa Godzilla kids. Our first, um, me- meaning our exposure to Godzilla was with the Showa films. Um, where my situation, I guess, is a little bit more lucky is that I was very fortunate to stumble into uh, things like G-Fan and the convention circuit very early. Um, you know, I became a Godzilla nut, and um, just I had a, another friend that I turned on to Godzilla who would also go to a lot of comic stores and would say, you know, they have Godzilla, like toys of, you know, King Ghidra and stuff at this comic store. And, um, you know, I didn't believe it at first. And then, you know, uh, of course, you know, my mom for my birthday did some digging and sure enough found that there's a whole Japanese line of Godzilla toys. And, uh, back then, you know, this is, you know, before everyone had access to the internet, um, uh, those toys would have to be, uh, taken, uh, you know, you found out about those from, um, these, uh, catalogs of like toy vendors and stuff, uh, basically like eBay and magazine form almost, um, Uh, Or think about, you know, when you go into a place and you see those free catalogs of people trying to sell cars, stuff like that. And so um, in those catalogs were also people that had uh, VHS tapes of not only, like, what was then more obscure movies like Destroy All Monsters or Yogg Monster from Space, but also these new Godzilla movies um, that would be bootlegged and subtitled. So I, I lucked into that in that the first Godzilla movie I saw this like immediately after it came out um, on VHS in Japan was Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, the 93 one, which I saw in summer of 94. Before that, though, um, for Christmas one year, I had gotten subtitled tapes of this movie and Godzilla vs. Mothra, 92, and a dub of Godzilla vs. Biollante, which was some crazy hack job edit of Biollante that I cannot for the life of me find, find out where it came from. I've asked everybody, people that are experts on all the different versions of this stuff that can tell you about French and German versions of these movies that no one's heard of. They don't know where it came from. So I, it must have been something that the bootleg guy did for some reason. Um, anyway... Similarly, the first time I saw this movie was a cut Chinese version, and my tape had Chinese subtitles and English subtitles in, like, one subtitle. Um, people that watch a lot of old kung fu movies might might have seen, uh, seen tapes like that before. Um, but that was cut by a few minutes, um, and so the first time I ever saw the full-length version was when it came out officially on VHS in 98. Um... So, um, so this is written and directed by Kazuki Omori, um, who had written and directed Godzilla vs. Biollante, and, you know, uh, quite famously, at least at the time, um, had had really (laughs) did a lot of running his mouth, uh, about how, you know, he really wasn't a fan of what became of the Godzilla franchise, you know, he was really into tokusatsu as a kid, into stuff like Ultra 7, uh, you know, loved movies like The Mysterians, and, um, you know, as he got older, he just kind of saw it as, like, dumb kid stuff, uh, so, um, you know, his, his thing with Biollante was he, he really wanted to, uh, him and, him and Tanaka, 
uh, the producer, um, really wanted to usher Godzilla into a modern filmmaking aesthetic. Uh, in the the comparison point they always made was aliens. You know, we want to make like Godzilla for the aliens generation. And um, Biollante, of course, famously didn't perform the best. And uh, you know, Toho really kind of wasn't sure what to do for a little while. Um, and you know, Omori at one point had written a big outline and a script and a pitch for Mothra versus Bagan. And of course, Bagan, we would, you know, we, we is, is basically become a meme uh, <laughs> at this point <laughs> of this Toho monster that has just, you know, surfaced as a potential idea in multiple projects. And to this day has only been included in a video game and more recently a Gaziban puppet show uh, special. Um, but Mothra versus Bagan got eventually got canned because Toho just kind of had cold feet that Mothra, you know, wouldn't wouldn't sell to a Western audience the same way Godzilla would, and they started to kind of reevaluate what they wanted to do with Godzilla, and um, the failure of Biollante. They didn't want to make a movie that was as um, I guess adult, so to speak. They wanted something that would be more enjoyable for kids, but they didn't want to lose that kind of political commentary, um, you know, commentary on the times edge that Omori brought. And so uh, they brought Omori in. And um, Patrick, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Kazuki Omori and, you know, uh, I guess, you know, how where he where he started and... Um, you know how I guess he felt about uh, the Godzilla franchise at the at the time that he was making these. Yeah, sure. So uh, Omori was a uh, a movie fan from a very young age. Uh, he came from a family of doctors. His father was a doctor, and he was kind of expected to follow the family tradition and become a doctor himself. But from a young age, he was enamored with movies. Uh, he saw Honda's original Godzilla when he was very very young. Was terrified by it completely. Uh, saw lots, lots of more uh, Japanese sci-fi films and television shows through the 50s and in the 60s. Uh, when he was in junior high school, he started to move away from this stuff, became more fascinated by Hollywood films and the French New Wave. And he kind of thought, he, he, felt, he said he, he once remarked in an interview that he felt kind of embarrassed watching Japanese sci-fi films as he got into, say, junior high school or so. But he remained fat, but he remained a huge movie fan. Um, at the time he was growing up, uh, the... Apprentice apprentice system that was that was once flourishing at places like Toho and Shochiku was uh, gone, if not quickly going away. And there wasn't like a, a really set guaranteed pattern to become a successful filmmaker in Japan anymore. So he um, did the family thing of going into medical school, went to medical school in Kyoto. But uh, whereas most Japanese med students spend six years in uh, med school, as he told Steve and I last year, he spent eight years in med school because he had a little side hustle going on of making movies. Um, he got his first really big Brit. He made, I should say he meant he made, you know, eight millimeter films and 16 millimeter home uh, indie films when he was in high school. But when he was in med school, he uh, wrote a script for called uh, orange road express in 1977. He submitted it to a contest called the Kido awards, which is named after Shochiku's uh, longtime producer, Kido Shiro. And it won the top prize and was received an offer from Shochiku to be made into a film with Omori being given the reins to actually direct it. So now he had kind of like you know a professional entry into the film world. 
Um, he kept making movies. As I said, spent two additional years in med school. Uh, the year he graduated, 1980, was also the, re- the year that his uh, acclaimed medical school drama, Disciples of Hippocrates, was released to immense, immense critical applause. Um, kind of had a bumpy start in his early years. Uh, his his uh, Haruki Murakami adaptation, uh, Hear the Winsing, uh, did, did not do well financially, to put it gently. Uh, kind of struggled a little af- well wise after that to uh, get his foot going foot in the door again. Uh, directed television commercials. Was one of the co-founders of the of the director's company. His uh, co-founders also include people like uh, Kurosawa Kiyoshi, and uh, eventually got back in directing features again in 1984. Uh, was scouted out by Toho's Toho and Tanaka in 1986, based on a recommendation from a group of uh, Osaka-based Godzilla fans. And we should mention that Osaka is Omori's uh, hometown. Part of the reason why Biolante has a, a key scene set in Osaka. And uh, over the next couple of years, as Bialante was uh, st- was uh, put on hiatus for a while because Toho um, saw it more valuable to keep making uh, teen idol films, and they put Omori in charge of a lot of those. Eventually, Bialante uh, came along, came along, went into production, and Omori uh, definitely, even though he was openly honest with Tanaka and Toho, saying like, "Hey, you know, I'm not, I don't dislike Godzilla, but it's just not like you know." something I'm all that passionate about anymore. I liked it when I was a kid. Nowadays, you know, not so much. That said, he was drawn to the project because, you know, he and Tanaka had, you know, a common idea of making a Godzilla film in a Hollywood entertainment-style manner. You know, and Omori being a fan of John Frankenheimer, John Sturgis, Brian De Palma, early Spielberg, uh, early James Cameron, uh, Francis Coppola, etc., was, you know, he took so he was he became excited about making a Godzilla film for that reason. Uh, Godzilla vs. Biollante was rushed into production, uh, came out uh, with very little advertising and marketing. Not too surprisingly, uh, didn't do all that well at the box office. And uh, by the time we get to this film, uh, Omori was a little interested in time travel. Um, one of his favorite Hollywood movies was George Powell's The Time Machine. And between Biollante and King Ghidorah, he had actually directed a little-known film that I actually was not aware of until quite recently called uh, Mangatsu, which is a uh, time-slip movie, kind of like G.I. Samurai, but the reverse concept of a uh, samurai being transported into the modern day, you know, comedy about that subject. So it was like Austin so Powers w- with the samurai. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Uh, so he was interested in time travel. Tanaka, not so much. But uh, Omori made a pretty compelling case to Tanaka, which was that the year that uh, Biollante was suffering at the box office, Back to the Future Part Two was flourishing at the Japanese box office. Yeah. And so he made a strong case, and eventually got made decided to push forward with the time travel thing. And uh, what I find most fascinating about King Ghidorah is that while the time travel element began as a commercial calculation, it ended up being weaponized into uh, what is, quite frankly and bluntly, and I, I don't think this is an exaggeration, <laughs> one of the most blatant, uh, bold, and straight-up, uh, how can I put it, character, uh, films to, to directly tackle the subject of the bubble economy that was uh, flourishing in Japan in the late 1980s and into 1990. Uh, uh, it's a, it's a t- period of time that has been you know, largely forgotten, but uh, during its day it was uh, quite prevalent. 
And to my knowledge, not very many Japanese films dealt with this uh, subject, which we can talk about in detail a little more later, uh, in a very heads-on manner. But this film not only addressed it, but addressed it in a very heads-on, blatant, and some might say crass and peculiar way which was of course the subject of controversy. Yeah. Yeah, we we're, we're we're definitely going to get uh into the weeds of the the bubble economy. Um yeah, you uh, even I like I I remember a lot of um uh kind of um you know, J- Japan being really I feel like that Japan's Economic prosperity, even on an international level at the time, was kind of, uh, I don't want to say if it, it was turning into a racist, you know, um, uh, alarm bell, but, you know, I, I remember, you know, uh, any any kind of, um, uh, any, any kind of big technological advance in the 90s was considered like, oh, it must be from Japan, you know, the Japanese mm-hmm. are, are beating us at, at this and that, um, and that was also true in the 80s. And uh, you also got to keep in mind that, you know, this is uh, 40 years after World War II. Obviously, you know, racist sentiments are, uh, you know, they're still there mm-hmm. at this point in history. And, uh, you know, quick little aside, but uh, I believe it was in 1990 or 91 that uh, Sony um, released a, a VHS, a new, a new, a new a VCR, and, one, and their uh, textbook example of how to – and the uh, – in their manual of how to program, I think it was like a, like a date or recording time. The date they used was the date uh, that uh, it was the date of uh, Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. which was uh, controversial as well. So, uh, yeah, the, it's not too terribly long after World War II. There's still definitely a, some uh, strong lingering feelings going on. So, yeah, there's uh, race, uh, race and nationality probably did play a factor in some cases with the. Uh, conflict with the conflict sometimes perceived sometimes literal between japan and the united states during this time yeah and um of course right now we we were just introduced to the futurians and we have uh these characters that are i mean i don't i don't know that i I don't think they come out and say it but you know one one is kind of uh a cipher for an american a russian there's a russian and a japanese as you know, uh, the first two as being kind of um, you know these representatives of these global superpowers, and Emmy, of course, um, being a representative of Japan, who is going to be one of those uh, uh, superpowers. And um, another, one of the reasons that I really want to do this commentary, just because this is one of the more political Godzilla films, um, and you know it doesn't get talked about as much as. Godzilla 54 or Shin Godzilla or even 84 or GMK in terms of the more politically focused uh, movies in the, in the series. But also, um, when uh, you guys had interviewed Omori, um, you know, and asked him about uh, some of the elements of this movie, you know, they're, they're, this movie made international news as, um, you know, uh, kind of another, you know, press alarm bell like the pre-internet version of clickbait almost you know and and you know it kind of had this reputation as being anti-american and then often very often um when this movie comes up in america at least i'm not sure about japan but when this movie does come up um in american fan circles it, it is used as an example of um 
a nationalistic film uh, or something like that. And I don't know if part of that is a carryover from the that that press stuff. Um, and and you know, it, it is said. At least the rumor is that uh, Ashiro Honda was made uncomfortable by some of the World War II stuff, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that when it comes up. Um, but what's interesting, though, getting back to that interview um, that, that you did with him, is uh, when, when you asked him about, you know, that, I guess, quote-unquote controversy, he said something that um, I think is important, and I hope that it's something that uh, people remember um, – is kind of a, from the horse's mouth about this movie is that he said that he really didn't view the Futurians as villains and and you know he, he, he that was never his intention was 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 never to make them seem like their cause was bad um that their their cause was noble even you know i mean they they end up maybe doing bad things but but what they wanted was not something that he viewed as uh basically he uh, he agreed with what what they wanted to what they were trying to do in in you know making sure japan does not reach you know uh, a superpower status um and so i'm i'm hoping we can kind of um help people and and i think us as we watch this as we're talking um, I, I, I hope that we can view the movie through that lens um, and uh, maybe maybe kind of get other people to view it through that lens too and maybe kind of redirect the discourse around this movie a little bit. Um, I, you know, I, I, I will not s- try to say this is the best written movie <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, and and, I, and I, I do think that some of Omori's intention uh, is probably a casualty of a script that really isn't um, the, the, the greatest. Um, mm. But I, when, I, when I hear that, I do view that as a sincere thing and 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 watching the movie now after having hearing him say that i i i can make sense of it i i I don't know that the movie always delivers that uh that that in a concrete way but i can see the intention there how do you guys feel about that uh well um yes to put it charitably the film script is very very messy (laughs) <laughs> um, for, for, for for things like for in, in, in for both its plotting, well yeah, in, in both its plotting and its messaging, it is not the most coherent. Yes, um, and I can I can definitely see some things that would provoke a um, shall we say more negative outlook toward uh, negative interpretation of the film. I can definitely see that, especially in, for example, like say how one dimensionally cold the Futurians are depicted. You know, there's not a whole lot of nuance to the way they're characterized and, and how they're portrayed. Um, that said, when, when you do look at the film and examine some of the things that are going on in there, yeah, I can definitely see um, traces of what Omori is talking about, namely with the character Mr. Shindo, who we saw earlier, yeah. and uh, kind of like, you know, what his decisions end up doing. I can kind of see a little bit of uh, what he's talking about. I think more. I think in addition to many things— what the script really could have benefited from was, and I've said this a couple times before in other places, a few straightforward Honda-like speeches to make it very, very clear you like, you know, <laughs> what the director is trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would have cleared the air and made things a little more easy to understand. Uh, 
in, in addition to, to again, other things that would help help the script. But uh, yeah, I, I can definitely see both sides of the argument. I can see what Omori is talking about, but I can also see very clearly why other people would probably, you know, question yeah. his uh, statements. It's, especially an American audience, I think it's very easy to probably have a, a have a more have a less of a good faith reading in in this movie. Um, Matt, how do, how do you feel? I mean, uh, how did you feel before? How do you feel after? I mean, uh, I don't know if you've seen this movie since you know that that interview, but I mean, just just in general, how how do, what's your perspective of that now? Like right now, you know, in twenty twenty two. Um, I think first of all, I was glad that that question was asked, and, and I'm glad that Amori answered it the way that he did because I think it sort of confirmed some things that bird had already bird and I already talked about on this podcast where like it, when you get to the, you know, that final sequel, the, the last act of the film and Godzilla is destroying Tokyo and he has, um, that moment with Shindo. I think that moment specifically and the relationship that Shindo has with Godzilla totally upends any idea that it's like this got this very rah, rah Japan go, you know, nationalism kind of vibe to it. I can see how up until that point, people may have felt that way, yeah. right? Because you have Godzilla specifically sort of rescuing the Japanese soldiers from from American forces. But once you get to that, the last act, I think that totally upends that claim. And I'm glad that, you know, Amori addressed it the way that he did. Um, and, you know, I I felt that way for a long time. And I still feel that way now, obviously. And then hearing it directly from him clearly shows his intention. Now, I will agree that, like, the film is murky and you have a lot of stuff going on. There's some complexities with a lot of the, the, the motivations for the characters. And especially like you have one person coming back and then changing side. Like pe- people switch sides in this movie yeah. enough to where like, I see why there's confusion. Well, by people, I, I think you're mainly talking about Emmy, which, which, which really does kind of, and um, you know, we, we'll, we'll table that a little bit for, for later, but I, I think if there is a character that muddies the waters thematically, it's definitely Emmy. it yeah. is, yes, it mm-hmm. is, it is Emmy. Um, and I, I think maybe another pass at the script would may would, would maybe help her feel less ambiguous in, in some of that. But I, I do think that is the easiest place to get thrown off aside from, just the depiction of the imperial um, imperial army. Um, uh, I think that's part of it, and I also think a lot of stuff, uh, the, a lot of the Shindo stuff, I think, gets overlooked in favor of you know the uh, the countries that the Western antagonists are representing. But um, for a Japanese audience, I think the Shindo stuff. Uh, is more boldface text, whereas to us Americans who may not be familiar, especially with the financial district <laughs> that the last act <laughs> takes place in, um, to us Americans that may not know that information, um, it's, it's I, I think I think there's I think you have to know that information to make it um, be, go from subtext to boldfaced, very blatant text. Um. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think um, there's a discussion to be had about Shindo that uh, I think maybe we can save. Um, uh, and sa- same with Emmy. I mean, those are two characters that I think um, we really kind of uh, 
need their own discussion. Um, uh, so right now, uh, we are traveling back in time. Um, so, uh, Godzilla in the original, um, you know, pitch in the original draft of the script, uh, was not supposed to be a quote unquote Godzilla Saurus. He was actually just supposed to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, and, uh, we had mentioned Tomiyuki Tanaka, of course, a long time, uh, franchise producer that's been with the, the series from 54 up until his death, circa Godzilla vs. Destroya. Um, hold on, we need to pause <laughs> that. Uh, I will get back to that in a moment. We are getting to a really great character interaction. We have, uh, um, these two guys, uh, American, um, Navy folks, um, and, uh, we have the, the guy who is, um, I guess the subordinate of the older guy here, um, and he is freaking out because he just saw a UFO, and, um, here we, not only do we have some truly atrocious line deliveries from some, uh, American actors who likely were just plunked off the street, which Toho would, would happen to do, uh, and uh, he says, uh, you can tell your son about it when he's born. Uh, what is it, Major Spielberg? Mm-hmm. Um, so this guy yes. on the right here is actually uh, Steven Spielberg's father. I forgot to mention, um, another reason we wanted to do this is because uh, th- there's a sequel to this movie that was just released called The Fablemans, um, <laughs> all about Steven Spielberg as a young youth. Um, and uh, yes, this, this is uh, the prequel to that. Um, and uh, that man would go on to father Steven Spielberg. Um, uh, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> so joking aside, that's obviously Omori. Like Patrick said, you know, he's a big fan of American films. Um, you know, so Spielberg's movies, James Cameron, and that that was, you know, his, I guess, cute little uh, nod to uh, um, Steven Spielberg. Um, anyway, so, yes, Tomiyuki Tanaka... Um, uh, so at this point, he uh, this is this is where he really puts Shogo Tamiyama um, uh, in charge of the franchise. I mean, Tanaka would still be there and um, you know make decisions and stuff, but Tomiyama was at this point the main producer. Um, and I think Tanaka had just gotten I, th- I want to say brain surgery. I, I could be wrong, completely wrong, but um, anyway, uh, Tanaka had come up with a rule and you know in looking at this you know he realized Godzilla himself didn't show up for a very long time and this is where Tanaka came up with uh, kind of a rule for the Heisei series um every 30 minutes there should be you know a big sequence with Godzilla and so he said you know instead of a T-Rex why don't we make this kind of a pre-mutated version of Godzilla uh Godzillasaurus and there we go. There is Godzilla Saurus. Um, and it is it's it's funny because most people, uh, Godzilla fans, I think, think of Godzilla as a mutated Godzilla Saurus, um, where that origin didn't show up until this movie. And really didn't uh this is still the only uh continuity in the franchise where Godzilla is a mutated dinosaur. Um, you know, in the fifty-four movie he was uh, uh awoken by uh, atomic uh, tests, and, you know, the, there's there's cues to think that maybe he was maybe scarred or 
disfigured in some way. And uh, this is the only one that's like, oh, he was a normal dinosaur of some kind, and then he was he was mutated at some point. Yeah, there's actually some uh, concept art with just very, you know, dinosaur-looking Godzillasaurus and other ones that are very... Um, they basically resemble the 54 Godzilla as a dinosaur. So he's got the, uh, like, it, like instead of having the really fanned out maple leaf spikes they're a bit more jagged and things, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Are, are you looking at the, um, the Shinji Nishikawa art? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's some really cool concepts. Yeah. That's, that's good stuff. Um, and, and so, I mean, here's one of a, I mean, here is where we, we really get into the stuff that American audiences kind of, we're not uh, mm-hmm. thrilled with, and uh, you know the the things that um, I mean. So right now we're we're in a looking at a firefight between um, the Imperial Japanese, you know, and and the Americans, and uh, this is all after a really rousing, triumphant speech by the great Yoshio Tsuchiya, uh, playing Shindo, you know, about you know the stronger, greater Japan, and. Um, it really is easy to look at these scenes and it, 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 I don't know that I've seen an official confirmation anywhere. Um, but there are, I've, I've seen a lot of rumors saying that these are scenes that Ashiro Honda especially was not very comfortable with. And like I said, I, I, I don't know that I've seen that a hundred percent confirmed, but I, re- I, I really have no reason to not believe it. Um, because these, these really are scenes, uh, about, you know, I guess in general, J- Japanese defeat and sacrifice in the war, and it, it is very easy to look at that and, and think it's it's looking at you know the imperial uh, Japanese, which I, I mean you know anyone that knows a lot about you know the World War II uh, Japanese, they, they were not great. <laughs> you know, I mean they're 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 essentially you know you know up there. With a lot of uh, uh, war crimes, uh, the same way that you know the Nazis are, and and so uh, for someone who is either an American audience looking at this or someone um, who went through the war and uh, and ha- was a forced imperial officer like Honda, either way, you know, I think to for for people to see these scenes, I I don't think it would be out of the ordinary to to get that. Um, that feeling. Well, you just compare like, for example, the scenes of war in this movie and the, to the scenes of war in Honda's like Eagle, the Pacific or Pharaoh Rabal. And yeah, there are two very different stripes for sure. Yeah. You know, Honda's movies kind of it, it deliver kind of, they all kind of had, have that, uh, kind of war as hell. You know, when you, en- when you enlist, you're just going into the meat grinder, Kind of thing. Whereas this is more a rousing, you know, Shindo having these rousing, triumphant speeches and and all that stuff. I, I definitely see it. And I, you know, I don't know, you know, I, it, you know, it, you know, we only, you only had so much time with Omori, and he, you know, he's gone now. No one can ask him anymore. But you know, I mean, for I don't know if the, there were maybe studio notes. You know, hey, you know stir up a little Japanese pride <laughs> in, in making these scenes or whatever. Um, that's a possibility. Uh, here, oh, God, here's some more Ameri- awful, just God. awful, awful. Attacking our boys. Yeah, awful acting. Um, 
but you know, as far as I know, Omori's real intent was, you know, he wanted to make, you know, basically make a Japanese uh, version of the war films that he liked, uh, which include Hollywood war films, you know, and and he like uh, he really did admire Hollywood filmmakers and Hollywood films. Um, to the degree where I, I can also accept these as being maybe a little bit of um, tone deaf, innocent, innocent but tone deaf things on, on his part. Yeah, when Steve and I talked uh, to him, he cited uh, Daryl F. Zanuck's uh, 1962 film The Longest Day as the film that turned him into a quote-unquote movie freak. And he further remarked that you know he forever, for the longest time wanted to make a movie like that, but, you know... It, Along with his usual, his other Hollywood imitations, it wasn't until Godzilla came along that he had the budgets and the opportunity to do that kind of thing. And so he cited the World War II sequence as him trying to make a small-scale, longest day, so to speak. In other interviews, he did talk about how he thought it'd be nice, you know, whereas the Americans win in most war movies, it'd also be, quote-unquote, fun to see them lose once in a while. So uh, <laughs> so, you have, so yeah. you have some uh, statements that almost seem to like you know, go against one another. Right, um, yep. And I, on that note, and this, and this I, sequence, I, and this thing was, I would say, this is this is more. Whereas a lot of Western um, audience uh, media outlets definitely noted the uh, the film's bubble economy commentary. This was the sequence that really got pe- under people's skins, especially yeah, you know, more so than anything else. Yeah, and I don't know. Uh, somehow, I don't know if maybe there was an American reporter that did a set visit or whatever. But you know, once once the these scenes existences is existences the existence of these scenes um were reported here in america that is when the the movie kind of took on a bad reputation here like i had mentioned earlier um and there there's you know the famous yeah. news report where um i don't i mean i even even up to a few years ago some studio got or some news outlet got busted talking to a phony uh war vet about some something uh anyway but yeah there was a news report where they they had famously asked veterans about oh what do you think about this thing that they're doing in the new godzilla movie and them saying it was tasteless and then you know that kind of just stirred up a kind of a like i said it it really was the pre-internet version of clickbait um (laughs) you know uh and and kind of let's try to manufacture an outrage just so we can have something to talk about um and uh, it's said, and I don't know that I have any authoritative confirmation of this, but it is said that that is is kind of where international distribution hit a snag um, with this movie and the following films up until the release of Godzilla '98. Now I know HBO had the rights to Godzilla vs. Biollante, um, and you know I don't know how video sales or rentals were going um, when that came out here, but. Um, I I don't it, it doesn't seem like it's that hard to believe that maybe you know people were just like hey you know we we don't want to get too too crazy and stir up a bunch of veterans and <laughs> and all this and there was also a, a journalist a American journalist who lived in Japan for the longest time uh, named James Bailey uh, he f- interviewed Honda at one point um, he was one one of the uh, he was definitely what you might call a uh, an expert on Japan and Japanese cinema, and he was among the, the voices saying that this was an anti-American film. So, somebody like him could prov- could provide you know statements like that with some clout. So uh, that probably also exacerbated you know the um, 
the perception of this film, which had which was not shown to a mainstream American audience for the longest time, yeah. of it being a very anti-Western film. Yeah, and and I would think especially before you know the the internet days, um, someone of someone who does have that kind of influence uh, saying that would probably carry a lot more weight than if it did now. You know, if this movie came out now and that guy said it, it would just be one in a billion voices that just you know are launched into cyberspace. I would also imagine that like all of those reports would only focus on this part of the movie and then like forget to talk about the ending <laughs> with like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, cause like, you know, they're saluting and, and thanking Godzilla for his sacrifice and stuff and referring to him as like a savior. Yeah. And then they never talk about Shindo's, you know, the, the well, end yeah. of Shindo later on. And, and I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff that still gets misconstrued with movies is, um, uh, you know, not people just taking elements out of context. I mean, um, uh, show that my daughter has really loved uh, is uh, the Netflix um, Adams Family series Wednesday, um, and I, I haven't watched it. In fact, I wanted to, and she watched it without me, little brat. Um, <laughs> but you know, Tim Burton these days has you know uh, among a, the Twitter sphere has a reputation for you know not casting a lot of people of color. And, and, you know, I saw some outrage articles the other day, you know, about how Wednesday fails its black characters and, you know, all the black characters in the show are bullies. And, you know, I, and just, just to kind of like, um, you know, okay, how true is this? So I, I asked Julia, you know, my daughter, she's eight. I ask, you know, you know, the, the, you know, the, the black characters, you know, I've seen a little bit of the show, like walking in and out of the kitchen, whatever. And I'm like, you know, are are they are they you know are they friends? Are they bad guys? And she's like, no, no. You know, um, they start off kind of mean, and then later on, you know, they 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 help. And you know, she's like, they're not bad guys at all. And so again, you know, I'm 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 assuming that must have started by someone that maybe watched the first couple episodes and then complained about it on Twitter and then hashtag Tim Burton is a racist is all over the place. And it's like, well, maybe if you watch the whole thing, you actually see there is a thing called a character arc and there is a thing called story development. And, um, and so, so that, yeah, I mean, that stuff's still happening now. And I can only imagine, you know, in 1991, you know, of course, that kind of thing would happen. Um, here we have the Dorats, which is still a really bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> it's a really bizarre decision for King Ghidorah to be, you know, his new origin is that he's three cute little, very fake toy looking things, which to my knowledge, <laughs> there weren't really Dorat toys until like, I mean, I know there's stuff now because they make toys of everything, but I, there weren't like Dorat plushes or anything in the '90s, as far as I know. So if this was a weird attempt at a marketing strategy, it didn't go anywhere. And then, and then, it, so yeah, it's very strange. And the, and and they don't look much like him, aside from like their body shape. You know, Ghidorah <laughs> doesn't have green like human like hair. Um, and, 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 yeah, so, so Ghidorah's origin now is, um, you know, she drops these Dorats off to be created. Nope. Yep. After they move Godzilla, because they want to make their own 
horrible radio radioactive monster that they can control and they can't control Godzilla and that turns out to be you know the thing that uh was their uh goal all along um uh interestingly uh Toho wanted Ghidorah to retain his uh, outer space origins and be from Venus uh it was Omori who said no let's do something else with where he comes from, and that is where um, Ghidorah being a child of the bomb, uh, that is where that comes in. Um, but uh, it's a weird origin change that uh, I know some fans have a reaction to it, but others, um, a lot of people don't really say much, and it's interesting just because you know you think about how many people still have the same tired... Uh, oh, look at that! Look at that! They, they are walking out of the experimental room. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of fans uh, still complain about um, Kaneko uh, having Ghidorah as a, a good guy in GMK, but somehow this crazy... This is far worse. It's this, not... this crazy origin is... Uh, okay, I don't know. I don't really care because i just see these characters as almost like modern myth where they're so malleable at this point you know one person's Ghidorah is another person's watermelon or whatever uh, i'm talking nonsense anyway how do you guys feel about the origin change i don't think it adds well, anything I, uh... to the story like it allows them to control Ghidorah, but that's really it i don't think it's interesting and i think the door ads are like they're very poorly executed and sort of distracting. <laughs> and be, so, like, I don't, I mean, I, Ghidra to me is best as a space monster, in my opinion. It's what it takes away from the majesty of the character. But, like, it, it's fine. I think more offensive than that is the fact that Kawakita decided to, like, Photoshop King Ghidorah shadow into everything. <laughs> <laughs> Kawakita is all over the place with this uh, because really there's is. there's some stuff that I think is truly astounding. This shot here is great, this but great, then, yeah. then there's some other things like composite things, like the shadow you mentioned, and uh, of course the Dorats, and of course we're going to get to uh, the M11 uh, chase sequence that are just so like uh, raw, visually wrong. But you have great stuff like this. Like this is yeah, this is this is a desktop yeah. background. Mm -hmm. uh, just great shot composition. Um, Anytime he decides to do, for the most part, there's a couple composites that work really well, which we'll see in a little bit. But like the, um, anytime he decides to, to have Ghidra flying in the city, it's it's it just is very distracting. Yeah. So this Ghidra was. Um, Design the the design is uh, Shinji Nishikawa and um, uh, the old Showa veteran suit maker Keizo Murase, um, you know, helped uh, model and build the suit, and he also um, made the original King Ghidra. So um, uh, I don't know. How do you guys feel about the '90s version? I I I I'm, I like him quite a bit, actually. Yeah. Um... This is the, the King Ghidorah that I first saw, so it has a, a strong memory in my heart. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 more or less, you know, just like a, a modern version of the, the classic design. You know, it doesn't have, you know, the modifications like with the horns and whatnot. But, you know, it's it's, a, it's an efficient, respectable design. Uh, the Dorads are not a respectable design whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it was in Ed Gotchachewski's book, The Illustrated Encyclopedia of Godzilla, where 
it's like one of like the I think it was a he was a it was a quote from one of the designers on this film who said, yeah, we turned in uh, like three or four uh, drawings of what the thing could look like for the uh, art staff to build. And we turned in what became the final version as like, you know, a, a version to reject. And that's the one they ended up going with. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I I do like I do like the the look of this Ghidorah. Um, I don't think you can top the, the show a version, though, like just the sort of the otherworldliness of how like the, the next like bounce back and forth and things like to me, that's the best execution and design of Ghidra. But I, I do like this one quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as the movement goes, I mean, it, it this is kind of where you see the beginning of, I guess, some issues that the Heisei movies have with just kind of stiff moving monsters. But I, I, I think design wise, and I think the suit, um, you know, the, the, the suit is really good. Um, you know, I, I think, there's some issues with, you know, it being fluid, um, in its movement, but so, um, so they not, not too. Okay. So one of the most common complaints about this movie is that the time travel part doesn't make sense. And (laughs) I don't think it's the best in the way that it's written or delivered, but, I don't have a problem getting my brain around it, especially in the dub. The dubbed version botches some some dialogue that I think is kind of important. Um, and these sub these subtitles aren't the best, but I think they do deliver uh, a little more there. Um, but uh, I don't know. How do you? Did you guys ever? I mean, time travel in general is one of those things. Where there really isn't a way to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always a paradox. Uh, but how do you guys feel about the time travel in this movie? I mean, for me, I, I always said it didn't make sense until like, I really kind of sat down with, uh, you know, sub- the, the subtitled copy and, um, and realized, okay, by removing Godzilla, they think they're removing the original Godzilla, but they're actually removing the Heisei Godzilla that first appears in 84, and then the dialogue ties that mutation around to uh, an incident with a sub in the 1970s. Um, but I, I think a lot of people still... And, because, and, and so, essentially, by that Godzilla being mutated in the 70s, when they, a lot of people ask, well, when they get back to modern day, why do they still remember Godzilla? And it's because they never erase Godzilla. All they did was move Godzilla to where he would be born reborn in 19 in the 1970s um so it's it's a time loop situation it's basically the same as well if john connor is um uh if john connor is the is if if the whole thing with the terminator doesn't happen john connor has no reason to go back in time and then uh, or um yeah has no reason to uh go back in time and wait, no, Kyle Reese has, I'm sorry, Terminator fans, don't get mad at me. Uh, Kyle Reese has no reason to go back in time and save Sarah Connor, which gives birth to John Connor. So Godzilla in this case, in 1970, is the John Connor being born. But it is true that if the whole conundrum doesn't happen in the first place, he doesn't get there. So it's a time loop thing, and it still doesn't make sense. Just like Terminator, when you th- really think about it, doesn't make sense. And that is where I am with the time travel bit. Um, what about you guys? Well, yeah, I, 
correct me if I correct if I'm wrong, but uh, they the only time in the Heisei series where they ever mention a second Godzilla is Destroya, correct? I mean, after this point in history, they always kind of act like you know Godzilla is just like you know. Godzilla's there's always ever been one Godzilla. I don't recall any line of dialogue in King Ghidorah where they say, oh, holy crap, we were wrong. There were two Godzillas the entire time. That's true, too. Um, and my thing is, like, you know, I know people like use this, this word time loop thing, but it's not mentioned in the movie. So and if it's not mentioned in the movie, then I think it's kind of fair to speculate that we're the, doing. You, you mean the, the two Godzillas <laughs> thing, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, the only thing and and. The only thing that I would be able to nail against you on that is that, um, well, even in the '84 movie, correct me if I'm wrong. In the '84 they movie, say, they never they never say if the '84 Godzilla is. They always kind of act like, oh, hey, it's just it's Godzilla. He's back. They never yeah, say it's the '84 movie. Godzilla. Yeah, the '84 movie. I don't think brings up the fact that the '54 one died. They bring up the '54 attack. But again, I mm-hmm. think it's Destroya that brings all that back just, in. Yeah. So yeah, it's true that. But if if you're viewing this movie in 1991, it doesn't make sense. But if you're viewing it in the continuity of Destroya, so basically, this is a problem that doesn't get fixed until Godzilla versus Destroya. Exactly. So there it go. makes me wonder, like, you know, did Omar even think of this while he was writing it? Probably yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, no, you're right. It, it, this only, yeah, the the two Godzillas thing. I mean, it, it works because yes, it's established late. It's it's kind of like, you know, when um the Star Wars prequels would try to wrap up something in the original trilogy that didn't make any sense. It's like, yeah, I see that mm. you caught it and you went back and fixed it, but it, it yes. We we can view that as a thing that is quote unquote canon now, but you still fucked it up back in the day and did something that didn't make sense. <laughs> it's sloppy. And the fact that we're having the conversation, I think proves it's sloppy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it only makes sense in terms of where it's contextualized in a later sequel. Yeah, and and so, yes, yes, that is a pro. I mean, I mean, I guess it's better that they did something then than never, but, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> so I, I feel like, um, I don't know the 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 time travel thing like it's when I watched it the first time like I just didn't think about it too much and I feel like that's how it has to be in most time travel movies because mm. there's always going to be that problem but in this case it's just really it it's very poorly done yeah well I mean it, it, not not that that excuses it because it, I mean it is true I mean okay so there's a plot hole that didn't either intentionally or in, unintentionally got resolved in a later sequel um, so, you know, that's an issue there, but even if, even if this movie had made that clarification, like any time travel stuff, it still wouldn't make much sense when you think about it. Like I said, how does John Connor exist because, be, you know, to start this big rebellion against the robots when the reason he exists is because... Kyle Reese had to go back in time and protect his mother. You know, and, and Terminator is a movie I love. Most people do. Um, it's just time travel in general just doesn't hold up under a lot of scrutinization. Uh, I think. Right. And so, the, some when you when you in, open the door to time travel, you're you're inviting scrutiny that is not going to hold up. I think. By the way, we just uh, talked over the 
I think a pivotal sequence where it's learned that Japan has a nuclear powered submarine that. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so let's, let's lead that into uh, a discussion, I guess, about Shindo. Um, the, the only other thing um, I would say about the time travel is um, in, in space Godzilla, cause everyone's like, Oh, well, if history's a race, why do they remember space God or why do they remember the Mothra and Biolante or why do they remember Biolante is the big thing. Um, but yeah, that's another thing that, you know, until I guess the two Godzilla's thing was clarified, kind of could nail this movie. So yes, uh, let's talk about Shindo and his ownership of, uh, illegal submarines, nuclear submarines. Um, and I think that's a good kind of uh, segue into the Shindo character. Uh, actually, real quick, before we do this, so this girl that's following him, um, <laughs> I'm just going to ask you guys, because I, I... Is that his girlfriend? Because I, yes. Okay. She's asking him to get married. Well, see, I because they share so few scenes together and so little, like... She's just barely there. I, I wasn't sure if that was a joke that the character was making or if they actually were involved. Patrick, do you care to clear this clear this up for us? Well, uh, the way I've always read it is uh, after Emmy and Terasawa have their, like, you know, sort of, you know, ar- at arm's length, romantically teasing each other dynamic, and at the end of the film, she's like, hey, plot twist, guess what? You're like my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, which uh, she should have mentioned from start instead of at the last minute (laughs) but uh and then that's immediately followed with terasawa and the uh editor girl like you're looking out in the sky as she flies away to me that reads that reads to me as omori saying yeah that's that's her great-great-grandfather and that's her great-great-great-grandmother all right so that's that's kind of how i read it terasawa just left the super scientific x-ray room uh that's what the (laughs) sign on the door said um uh, actually, uh, we'll get to Shindo, but I, I think now is probably the best time to have this conversation. Um, <laughs> so we are coming up to an infamous scene, uh, which was, uh, is an insanely goofy chase se- sequence, uh, as they're being tailed by M11, played by Robert Scott Field. And I remember, uh, the first time I saw this movie, even when I, geez, I, I was probably like my daughter's age. I was probably about eight years old, nine years old, maybe. Even then I thought this was so ridiculous looking. Um, and I remember showing my friends who I had turned into Godzilla fans, you know, as a kid, uh, watching this movie with my friends and just, we all just laughed our asses off at this scene as children. Um, anyway... Uh, and I, I have also seen this movie in uh, a movie theater twice, once at G-Fest and another time at the Detroit Institute of Arts here in Michigan. And just both times, just people are just, you cannot take this seriously. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, obviously <laughs> M11 is is our, our big Terminator, Terminator ripoff yeah. character here. Um, I played, have... Yes? Sorry. I have a little behind-the-scenes thing for this. Okay. Uh, that, that we're about. So when he's running next to the vehicle, they basically achieved that shot by him being like in a harness. <laughs> this this is so stupid. Yeah, so like yeah. when he's running, yeah, he's running stationary, and they're pulling him on like a little wagon thing right there, and he's actually got a harness on his waist, uh, and it looks wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, <God. clears throat> so this actor, um, 
uh, interesting guy, to say the least, uh, is an American actor named Robert Scott Field, who I, I think ended up becoming rather infamous uh, and um, popular, popular and infamous <laughs> in fan circles because um, he kind of became a sort of unofficial ambassador for the franchise um, here in America, particularly at, at G-Fest, um, you know, the, the biggest annual Godzilla convention that, you know, anyone listening here is probably aware of. Um, and uh, for a year, I mean, over a decade, um, he was a guest regularly every single year and would also be the tr- translator for the Japanese guests. Um, and, uh, I mean, I don't know why it's still kind of, I don't know, talked about under, um, I guess, uh, 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 I guess under under our breaths here, but um, he hasn't been there in a few years, and um, yeah, there's reasons he is not there. <laughs> um, I, you know, we we're not going to get too lost in the weeds, but I, I, I essentially uh, like any crazy scandal with this franchise. There's always like a crazy history behind it, right? Um, so you know, the scandal with him, I guess, more or less scandal. I guess I don't know in quotes. Uh, but you know, for, for many years, he, uh, would come here and like I said, was seen as kind of the official, unofficial ambassador of the franchise. And, you know, he'd make buddy buddy with conventions and, you know, it's, it's, it is really cool, you know, to be like, Oh, the guy in, you know, this crazy Godzilla movie that I grew up on, you know, he knows my name and, you know, uh, we get dinner together every year and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, he was he would be there um every single year from like 2000 to 2018 or something. Um and so uh so yeah, I I've been to plenty of conventions with with him in uh in attendance as a guest and um yeah, uh as of a few years ago, he just kind of dropped off the circuit there. Um and uh, I don't know. I have to be kind of careful about what I say because this is all kind of like hearsay. Um, uh, I mean, there's rumors. You know, I can't confirm anything or deny anything. Um, I haven't had any of these experiences myself. Um, uh, but you know, there's there's rumors that uh, you know he would try to get close to fans and kind of um, get them, uh, you know, part to partner with him and. Various, you know, strange business ventures, like for energy drinks or whatever. Um, And so, like, the rumors are all kind of uh, that he was, I don't, I'm, I hesitate to use the word con man, um, but he would kind of get people into what, uh, I guess, I guess what people would call like a pyramid scheme, um, sort of, but. But yeah, uh, like I said, these are just rumors. I I can only talk about rumors um, because uh, I haven't experienced any of this stuff. Um, and I know people, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's embarrassment or what, but people don't seem to talk too much about it. Um, but uh, I'm assuming that a lot of these rumors were kind of um, uh, eventually got... I guess spread around, and you know, for whatever reason, um, they—I don't know 
like I said, I can't say how valid the rumors are, but I'm assuming that has something to do with why uh, why he's he's not so much around anymore. Um, but I know he still does uh, events, uh, you know, in Japan. Like he'll, you know, introduce a film screening or um, or do a signing or or whatever. Um, but yeah, he had, the only conventions he really came out to this way were were G Fest. Um, but, uh, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of crazy rumors about this guy. Um, and that, that's just kind of, uh, I don't know, just, a another strange kind of thing in the world of, of Godzilla fandom. And, uh, there's, there's a lot of those. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I hope the rumors aren't true cause that would be horrible, but you know, it wouldn't be the worst or weirdest thing that's happened in the the Godzilla fandom um but yeah no the the M11 chase is hilarious and uh uh like I said uh makes me laugh every single time um and yeah that is uh that is a goofy run there yep yep anyway that is the very bizarre uh, history, I guess maybe sort of rise and fall of Robert Scott Field as a Godzilla franchise ambassador. Um, although he still does make appearances in Japan, um, you know, at screenings, um, anniversary uh, events, stuff like that. Um, I know recently he was at the event with. Um, I know Megumi Odaka was there. It was. Uh, I think there was a documentary about her that uh, is is was being shown and, um, you know, kind of a celebration of her career. And, uh, um, so he, he is still among, among the living, but, um, yeah, uh, that's just crazy stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not even saying that out of any bitterness is, of being a, a G fan, quote unquote, you know, uh, but just as just a really weird slice of Godzilla behind the scenes history. Um, anyway, um, I, so, uh, I said we'd get back to Shindo and, uh, we're not really at a Shindo specific scene at the moment, but, um, yeah, let's get into that. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely want to talk about that and I think that's a good segue into the bubble economy stuff. Um, uh, interesting side note though, uh, Godzilla's mutation we just saw in the original draft, he was actually bombarded with nuclear missiles to get powered up, um, uh, by Shindo's sub. And, uh, I, I think that was probably a good move to change into like, oh, he just like ran into, <laughs> ran into it <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Um, I love, this is like one of my favorite. Oh, this is a, Godzilla yeah, this is a great shot. Mm-hmm. Um, this part of him walking by the, the farm or whatever, uh, is great stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the lighthouse, yeah, uh, the they lighthouse, actually did yeah. film. They filmed a sequence. They didn't put it in the film, but they actually filmed a sequence where they build up a lighthouse miniature and Godzilla's tail smashes it, but it didn't go yeah. so well. So they there, cut there it. we saw him walking behind all the cows. I love that, the, that shot. The mooing, mooing yep. intensifies. <laughs> mooing <laughs> intensifies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think the change uh, to not have him bombarded by missiles is probably was probably in good taste. Um, 
just because I that's just kind of seems a little icky to me and especially you know I mean how we saw that literally happen in Godzilla King of the Monsters and just seeing how offensive a lot of people <laughs> I think including us <laughs> kind of found that idea and of course this is the movie that people bring up when trying to uh, I guess talk about that decision in King of the Monsters is well they did it in Godzilla versus King Ghidorah but you know there 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 were bad side effects to that and in the larger context of the movie it was essentially um something done with a submarine that was uh noted to be illegal and owned by a complete shitbag of a character um so i think that kind of negates any i guess kind of justification of of that um but um so let's talk about uh, Shindo, and um, you know he's seen. I guess, like we said, we, we you could see him. Uh, you could see this movie as make, making him try to look like a war hero. Uh, just if you view those flashback scenes, but when you see his present day, what he has become, he has become a crass, gross, sleazy representation of Japanese wealth. Um, and his death scene that we're going to see later actually takes place in the Japanese um, financial district uh, in a tower that uh, was hated by people, you know, uh, called the, nicknamed the Tax Tower. Um, you know, you can use your imagination as to why it's called that. But um, So Shindo's character arc is he becomes, and this is where, you know, some, some perspective on the, the Japanese um, climate at the time would help American viewers, maybe even Japanese viewers now, over 20 years later, um, 30 years um, later, which hurt to say, Jesus. Um, uh, but help us understand, really, that character arc, because this is not a man who, especially in 1991, if, if you were watching it in Japan, um, you know, this is not a man that is noble. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you, we, you know the, the movie shows him, you know, having these nukes is a bad thing, which uh, if you listen to our 84 commentary that we did with Tom's um, Final Forum podcast, we talked about in the 80s, you know, you know in, it, Japan was knowingly housing illegal nuclear weapons um, off its coast. And, you know, so in the movie, um, when they're like, oh, my God, how could there be like a, you know, that, you know, the whole thing with Russia, you know, oh my God, how could that happen? Like, they were knowingly doing stuff like that. And um, and here, we see this nuclear sub owned by this rich guy, um, and he is a reflection of that Japanese wealth. Um, and so um, I am going to pivot to Patrick to kind of discuss with us the Japanese bubble economy. Um, and, you know, obviously that bubble ended up bursting, <laughs> I think. But yeah, give us give us a little crash course in, in exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, like I mentioned before, the bubble economy is a largely forgotten period of uh, 20th century history, but in its time, it was quite noteworthy. Uh, basically, uh, in the mid-1980s, uh, after a broad variety of uh, circumstances that led up into it, um, Japan experienced what's called an economic bubble, where their economic hubris grew exponentially. This was caused by a number of things, including the uh, devaluation of the dollar, the Japanese yen, becoming almost doubling in value. Uh, that combined with uh, changes in government economic policy, uh, impact loans, extremely low interest rates, all these things combined led to an extraordinary amount of corporate and individual wealth in Japan. 
And this was a complete reversal of the total depression Japan had experienced in the 40s, in the late 60s, in the 70s. And it seemed like Japan, which had you know been you know a huge victim, economic victim of the war, was now on its way to be to surpassing the United States as the the world's leading economic superpower, because individuals as well as companies were becoming exponentially wealthy to the degree that uh, a common pastime for a large number of Japanese housewives was taking financial investment classes. That was a pretty common activity for housewives in this period of time in the late 1980s. And with that extraordinary amount of uh, excessive wealth came the acquisition of international properties, most noteworthy in the United States, where Japanese corporations were buying up everything from hotels to skyscrapers to to, uh, CBS records to company control of Columbia Pictures to the company control of the Rockefeller Center. And it was estimated that in 1988 alone, Japanese companies had invested $16.5 billion worth just in the United States. And that's not counting what was going on in, say, London, for example, where they were issuing 10% of all bank loans. Or in Vietnam, where they were acquiring all the uh, uh, floating hotels, which are major tourist destinations. And we could talk about that you know, for hours and hours and hours. But basically, you know, there were lots of Japanese corporations that were buying up properties around the world. And it was a contentious news item for many, many years. To the, and there was even a point where uh, USA Today ran a front page article that begged the question, and I quote, will Japan end up buying it all? So, and th- so this, this really flourished beginning in like 1986 up through 1990. Now, what's the really curious thing about Godzilla versus King Ghidorah is that it comes along at a point in history where this period of excessive wealth in Japan is actually rather quickly going on its way out. Uh, in 1990, October 1990, so a year before this film sees a release, uh, the Japanese Nikkei stock market index dropped 48% and brought with it a capital loss equaling about 300, 307 trillion yen. And at this point in history, though, a lot of those Japanese investors that had bought up properties around the world are suddenly scrambling to sell their overseas investments. And by the time Omori's film hits theaters, more than 30 Japanese banks are in danger of failing. And for context, we should mention that, you know, by this point in history, a Japanese bank had not failed since 1946. Because at this period throughout history, even when Japan went through economic slumps, there was like a policy or there was like a, like, say, shall we say, a tradition in practice where if a Japanese bank was failing, another bank would step in and save them. It was kind of the opposite of the dog-eat-dog mentality we have here in the United States when it comes to things like this. But now we have 30 Japanese banks that are in danger of failing the year this film is coming out. So it's a so in that, in that sense, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah is a very strange movie because it comes along at a time where all this is happening, and yet it imagines a future in which Japan's economic hubris <laughs> it's a, goes on forever. It's almost like the... So, so yeah, so to, to interject quickly, so... Um, so that is the prevailing, I think, at the end of the day, the theme of the movie is saying Japan getting too big for its britches is a bad thing. And that is where Omori's comments about, you know, the Futurians' plan to stop Japan from doing that is actually a noble cause. Um, now, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it is interesting that uh, by the time he makes this movie, 
this movie is ref- is is you know a warning to something that uh, in real life you know, is basically not a concern anymore. <laughs> so the thing right. Omori is worried about with this movie is already dying down. Um, so it, it's it's almost one of those things where, like, it's very much a, uh, a, a movie commenting on the times, but it's commenting on the times, like, a year too late, almost. <laughs> like it's it's outdated. It's, it's an it's an oddity in a, in a lot of in a large number of ways. And you know, and sociologists have uh you know talked about you know the perception of by the Japanese of their economy you know when it was on its way out. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Christopher Wood, uh, economics journalist who covered like you know the bubble economy during its reign and its uh, immediate after effect and its immediate uh, fall afterwards. And he remarked in his uh, 1993 book about the bubble economy that. Uh, even at this point, two year, no, three years after the bubble had popped and all these things were happening and actually getting much, much worse, he remarked how the Japanese still clung to this belief that the bubble economy was not their actual core economy. They kind of viewed it as like you know an after, like a uh, side effect of their economy. Basically, like you know, let's compare it to like say their actual core economy to like say a tree trunk, and they imagine the bubble economy as a branch growing out of that tree trunk. And that so even if the bubble popped, even if that branch was cut off, the core economy, the trunk of the tree, would go on forever. And that was a, a notion they clung on to in the '90s, even after, even as as all these things were happening, and you had bankruptcies, you know, happening left and right, and you had you know, unemployment surging, and you know, various uh, financial um, strategies being practiced by the government that were not helping, to say the least. But uh, yeah, just some interesting uh, social uh, observations being made around this time period. But yes, as a movie tackling this subject, it comes along at a very interesting point in history, which uh, makes it, I think, all the more fascinating to study. Um, so, so what you were saying about the Japanese viewpoint of the bubble economy is, you know, the tree trunk, you know, metaphor. Would you say that there's a certain sense of cockiness that maybe came with that? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Um, and actually, um, you know, our friend Norman England, you know, I want I a couple months ago I talked to him about his memories of the bubble years because you know he lived through that whole that whole, whole era. And uh he remarked to me, I'm forgetting the exact details, about how a company he worked for had some Japanese investors who were coming over to like, you know, talk business and whatnot. And the investors were, needless to say, very cocky about Japan's economic hubris and how they viewed it just like, you know, just going on and on and on. And again, yeah. like the Japanese at the time, they kind of they kind of took this uh, this period of wealth for granted. Like I said, you know, housewives, you know, taking you know financial investment classes, you know, com- uh, individuals capitalizing on the wealth of their land. And in, we should mention, like in Japan, uh, the value of property is measured by land, not the property that's built on top of it. Which is why buildings in Japan get knocked over and replaced on a moment's notice quite often. Uh, so yeah, there was definitely, I would say, a level of cockiness going on. Sure. So I wonder, you know, I mean, obviously, unfortunately, you know, I, you know, I don't want to put. Yeah, I would have, I would have loved to talk. About, I think, I think I know where you're going with this. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I wish I had known as much about the economy, bubble economy, last year as I know now. Because yeah, be, I because might, if we had time, I would have loved to have tailored some right. questions to Omori in a very diplomatic way. Yeah, to see yeah, and, and and I know kind of how he thought of it. You know, and and I know um, we even talked about, you know, because the interview you guys did. I mean, all of us. 
behind the scenes contributed questions. We all had favorite questions that had to get cut because he only had so much time, and we were hoping to, mm-hmm. you know, have another chance with him. And uh, you know, obviously, we don't. And because of that, I, I I don't want to you know project too much of my own reading onto it. But um, but yeah, I I wonder if you know, even though that hysteria was dying down, if maybe he he wanted to make this is kind of you know, a message to the people of, you know, hey, even though this is not a thing anymore, here's why, you know, maybe this cocky, you don't want to get too cocky, and I do want to show you why Japanese prospering too much can be a bad thing, and and maybe it's just something that he just really wanted to tackle because, you know, maybe he was bothered by seeing how many people were so cocky about it, in, even though it was collapsing. You know, but yeah, and like I mentioned before, you do see some traces of what he uh, talked about in Kaiju Masterclass in this film, like with the character Mr. Shindo, who basically is like you know unchecked capitalism. You know, yes. he has yep. his company has a nuclear weapon, which he very conveniently docks outside of Japan to avoid conflict with the non-nuclear principle, um, and he rashly deploys it to re- to revive the monster that he believes is his savior. And all that happens is that, you know, number one, Godzilla's already been revived, and Shindo sending his nuclear arsenal towards Godzilla just ends up increasing Godzilla's power. And what does Godzilla do once he reaches landfall? He then turns his power loose on the uh, prosperous, lush nation that Shindo is credited in the film for helping build. Yeah, So, So, so... So, yeah, I mean, that's when you look at the character of Shindo and looking at it as a full thing and not just you know, bits and pieces of it, you see someone who, okay, uh, let's say, let's say we want to call him a war hero. What, what does he become? He becomes this perverse kind of, uh, icon of unchecked capitalism and, you know, the danger that comes with it. Yeah. I think it's also worth mentioning that, uh, in the early development of the film story, um, Omori had actually toyed around with the idea of the Japanese government, using a nuclear weapon to revive Godzilla. Um, but that was changed because, you know, he felt there was questions like, you know, will the self-defense forces, you know, cooperate with us if we do something like that? And also, is that really in good taste to be, uh, <laughs> yes, doing that right. when with the, with the historical, uh, uh, um, roots of what Godzilla is all to, what the Godzilla franchise has historically been about. Yeah. Oh, only if, uh, some American writers who were making a similar decision, uh, recalculated moves like that um anyway um i think we're coming up now uh godzilla trips soon doesn't he yeah yeah yes. um yeah I, i'm getting ahead of myself but I, I i i hear people complain about scenes like that or you know godzilla's first appearance in godzilla versus the thing where he's just tripping all over the place but i really love that uh and and it's one of the things i actually like a lot about um the 2014 Godzilla, uh, there's parts at the end where he's kind of clumsily running <laughs> into stuff and buildings are falling on him. And he, I, I don't know. I always like, oh, here it is. Yeah, here it, there is. it is. Oh, here he is. He's mm-hmm. going to eat shit. Yep, there you go. Um, I always like, <laughs> I'm laughing, but I do always like these scenes because they really do uh, kind of um, accentuate just how gigantic and out of place <laughs> these creatures are. <laughs> Um, and, and they're both, you know, they can be funny, but they can also be like, yeah, you know, yeah, this guy, this, this animal is probably extremely confused about what is happening. 
<laughs> it just makes the monsters out of their element, and I my, I, I like that. My misremembering didn't uh, Satsuma like basically get knocked out for that when he tripped on, when he fell there. Because I think he smacked his head against the stage. You might be mm-hmm. right, but it's also possible that I mean these Satsuma Nakajima. These guys were getting knocked out like every. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, there's so many stories about these guys going on, like getting knocked out cold. <laughs> um, the Rodian, that, that the you could Rodian be conflating the, it, but yeah, it's probably true. With like the Rodan falling from uh, the, the original Rodan, where Nakajima was in the suit and he fell and like didn't die somehow from. Yeah, he was feet. also yeah he was uh, he was knocked unconscious in King Kong versus Godzilla. Nakajima went through it, man. Um. Uh. So here, here we are getting the crazy crackpot scheme to re- go and revive King Ghidorah, um, because it, there's some nonsense about his cells are being going to be preserved due to the low temperature. <laughs> For 2,000 th- yeah, years. Yeah, and they're going to go to the future and make him a cyborg <laughs> and then come back with a Mecha Ghidorah, which does conflict with uh, um, what they say earlier about why Shindo can't go back in time with them because it would create a paradox when you're in the same time oh. period as yourself. So King Ghidorah... Don't worry about it. Yeah, so so them going back and bringing back King Ghidorah's corpse uh, as a <laughs> cyborg conflicts with the King Ghidorah being in the ocean here. Again, yeah, was, we're just, don't think about it. Um, so here we have Emmy at this point um, being weird with her grandson or whatever. Um, <laughs> I still, I don't, Yeah. <laughs> But uh so so um I mean now is a good time to maybe talk about Emmy and this is where even knowing all the stuff that you know about the the time period and the climate and the uh, economic bubble and um you know contextualizing the character of Shindo this is where you can still find weird messaging um because Emmy was a part of that plan for reasons unbeknownst to us, her her cohorts, who are now dead, did not share that they would be basically using King Ghidorah as blackmail, um, and that they were going to use King Ghidorah to kill people um, as soon as Godzilla was out of the picture. You know, she thought that there would be an ultimatum first, um, and they did not do any kind of bargaining. They just said, "Here's King Ghidorah. He's going to kill everyone. Now listen to us." And she's so she's upset about that, and so this is where the messaging gets muddled, because um, you know you can really follow Omori's intentions up to here, um, and this is where you know she makes the decision to um, go back and and save Japan now that things have gone too far, um, and you have the character of Emmy, who uh, you know her cohorts are Westerners, you know she's I think she's still Japanese, but. You know, here you you can have a bad faith reading that is very easy um, to extrapolate, um, where you have the character who was on the side of the people trying to stop Japan now deciding that she is having a change of heart and she needs to help her ancestors. And, you know, she even uses the words ancestors. Um, And this is where uh, there are ways to talk about how that could be uncomfortable um, if read in a way, uh, in a certain way. I mean, I, I've talked about Shin Godzilla and um, 
uh, how just on a personal level, this isn't something I bring up publicly much because you know I'll 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 be uh, I almost said a word that would have loaded that way more racially than <laughs> I would have mentioned. I, I would I would I would be attacked. <laughs> um, but you know, with Shin Godzilla, there's the character of uh, Kyoko Ann Patterson who is half American, half. Japanese. I myself am biracial. I've talked about this before. Um, and where that character's decision, uh, and I'm not going to get too lost in the weeds on this, um, just I'm going to rip it off like a Band-Aid. That character's decision kind of makes me uncomfortable a little bit because it's like, okay, there's something in her Japanese blood that is is um, uh, outweighing the rest of her in, in, in that sense, outweighing the other part of her biraciality to side with Japan and do, you know, do what she needs to for the motherland or whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm not getting lost in the weeds in Shin Godzilla. I'm saying there is a similar read you can make with Emmy here in that um, she is uh, this character who is, is, you know, doing something to preserve some sort of ancestry. Um, and, uh, you know, oh, the f- we, we, need a J- we need this character to be Japanese so she can not make the audience too uncomfortable with you know what they're seeing, and um, I think that there are reads like that to take out of the Emmy character and put into this. Um, I want to get both of your thoughts on that, uh, but real quick, just because this is maybe the most talked about scene in this movie. Um, here mm-hmm. we have a scene that I, I Ameri- that fans are strange about. Um, so obviously, the Godzilla is sort of feeling something here. Um, it looks like he's almost, it looks like he's crying and, 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 you know, I, so there is some kind of remembrance here of when he was being left for dead and Shindo, uh, the narcissist that he is, thinks Godzilla is his, he's friends with Godzilla. And of course, Godzilla's reaction is to kill him. Um, it's a, a scene that most people look at as a very serious scene of pathos, and maybe it is, but I also see it as kind of darkly funny. I think there's a, a dark humor to that scene also. Um, what do you guys think? Well, uh, going off of what Shindo says in his dialogue, you know, it, it seems very clear to me that he recognizes that you know the, his rash decisions has led to the undoing of everything that he built for his country. And so he's kind of accepting his fate at at the hands of what he thought was his savior. So okay, I've, I, I, I see, I see it as, as he describes it quite quite ironic. Okay, not really as a, a darkly humorous. All right. Moment. Well, I always I, maybe it's just because I think it's funny. <laughs> Matt, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of in the uh, similar vein to like Patrick, where it's it feels almost like retribution for some of the things that Shindo has done. Also, it kind of feels to me that, like, even though Shindo made some very obviously horrible choices, that um, it almost feels like he's he's realizing it in that last moment to me. All right. Well, the like, humanist so. in me really likes that take, but I'm also, I mean, of course, I'm I'm a miserable, cynical person, <laughs> so you know, of course, I I got what I got out of that. Uh, <laughs> quick props though to Suchia's performance. Um, Shindo's a really yeah, interesting his, character. His, his, fav- his, his favorite movie role, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he always talked about how much he loved this. He said like this, Human Vapor, Seven Samurai were like his three favorites. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's so great in this. But anyway, yeah. Uh, so what I was saying about Emmy and where that character really makes the th- thematic stuff of this movie 
kind of weird. Um, I don't know. How do you, how do you guys feel about that? I, I do think it is thematically muddled. And if you think about it too hard, which if I'm going to be honest, I don't know that Amori did. Um, right. Uh, these <laughs> movies were made so fast but, and loose. Yeah. Like, that's, uh, you know, so, part of me feels like they were just trying to get from point A to point B and that's the route they chose. And because of that, it thematically makes it feel uncomfortable. But I sort of look at it as being like, well, that's just really happenstance because of the choice they made. It wasn't intentional. Mm-hmm. Whereas like where Shin Godzilla is very intentional. Well, it's like so, how Godzilla versus Megalon like accidentally advocates for the use of nuclear weapons. <laughs> like yes. it's one of those things where sometimes <laughs> I think these movies, especially, especially back then, um, not so much now, like Shin Godzilla and the legendary stuff goes through a much, a very lengthy pre-production stage. But back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, it's like, here, we, we needed a new Godzilla script, you know, write it in five minutes or whatever. And so, so yeah, I, I think the Godzilla versus Megalon comparison that I made, I think, makes sense. Is like, you know, sometimes there's just a casualty of it, whereas the writer just doesn't have enough time or, you know, isn't thinking enough about it and they just want to get, get the story moving. Um, but yeah, that that is where Emmy gets weird. Patrick, what do you think about that whole mess yeah I, i'm basically in the same vein as as uh what matt said like yeah like you know it, it almost you definitely see emmy does not demonize japan you know she even appeals to uh that the guy in the summary who we saw earlier like you know please give my ancestors one more chance yeah. yes they, they made a mistake in the past but let's let, let, them, let them try again but yeah then she also says things like you know my homeland and and things like that and uh yeah i i can there's, it, it is a little, a little muddled in the air, yeah. along with and, you know, and, many and, and, and words like <laughs> that. You know, my ancestors, my homeland. I mean, there is a you could read that as you know. I mean, those are words that can come off like dog whistles. So hmm. I get it. Um, I'm you know, I, but with what Amori was saying about how Japanese prosperity should be checked, you know, I I don't think that was. The intention, especially, yeah, you know, uh, especially, and that that is why I've said, you know, I'm really glad that you guys had the opportunity to talk to him because we did get from the horse's mouth, you know, he didn't really see the the Futurians um, motives as being villainous. He saw them, as, mm-hmm. he saw it as a noble cause. And then, of course, we mentioned the tax tower. Um, and this whole sequence, mm-hmm. you know, is, is in the financial district of Japan. And they're, you know, blowing up the, basically the, the, the <laughs> epicenter of Japanese wealth at a time that Japanese wealth was, uh, uh, you, know, you know, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on about it. So that's where I have to look at what the guy said and what's in the movie and where I think there's just some stuff that suffers as a casualty of, you know, another pass at the script probably could have worked wonders. Um, mm-hmm. but, yeah, uh, setting it in the, uh, the setting this uh, climax in the tax tower or the Tokyo Metropolitan Building, yeah, it is quite interesting because this this complex was loathed by both the public as well as the foreign commentators on the bubble economy. You know, this this, this uh, tower complex was described by the Washington Post, for example, as like a, a vain uh, symbol of Japan's wealth. Yeah. And 
So it's interesting, therefore, that you know a lot of these commentators didn't note the fact that this you know this big complex, which by the way was quite new at the time this film came out, it was opened in like you know I think December of 1990, is it that that is that it's ultimately you know completely obliterated and torn to the ground in this big uh, climax between the monsters. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, you know, those are such culturally specific details, though, that, like, you really do have to be, like, really hyper nerds like us that are going to look at a movie and really want to do the homework to learn about the history of um, the time period that it was made in and really dig up a lot of that information. Because, like, if I was just your casual... uh, movie fan, or even your typical Godzilla fan, like most Godzilla fans, and I don't even mean don't this... Don't know as, about this, yeah. Yeah, and I don't even mean this in, in a negative way. Most Godzilla fans, they just want to see, you know, their favorite monsters fight, and a lot of them do want that social commentary that comes with it, but not a lot of people are willing to look at a movie and then be like, wait a minute, I want to learn a little bit. Was that trying to say something? Like, let me look up some, you know, real-life things that are going on right now. Most people don't do that. It's really the like hyper obsessive people like us that really do that, and um, and that is why again this is a movie that I feel like um, it's good to do a commentary for, and I think especially after Omori talking about it and really kind of in my mind setting the record straight after so many years, um, I think this movie is due for a reevaluation, um, not necessarily critically. I mean, we've talked about how this really isn't a, a great. Uh, the most well-written movie, you know, effects are w- wonky at times, and, and and so the movie, not not so much as a critical piece of film, but really in um, evaluating it in the context of when it, w- when it was made, what it was trying to say, I think there should be a renewed discussion of it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, these are details that most people aren't going to know, and, um, and that's okay. Like, only weirdos like us are going to be thinking about this stuff but um (laughs) but that is also why it's good commentary fodder because it's like hey you know here's some stuff that a lot of people might not realize um but yeah those are culturally specific things that if you don't know it's very easy to really run with this movie as being a piece of uh, a a a nationalism and and i i do think there's some unfortunate maybe accidental nationalism at play here but um but uh yeah there's a lot of details that i i think to a non-Japanese in the 90s viewer, you're just not going to know. Like, there's no way unless you really were insane like we are. Um, (laughs) One thing that we didn't mention, um, uh, and, you know, as we wind the movie down, is uh, this was the first movie uh, that uh, had the return of Akira Ifukube doing the score. And, um, you know, after Terror of Mechagodzilla, I, I think he'd just been, you know, not going to do it anymore. I'm old. I'm like, you know, just leave me alone. And I think they did ask him, um, our, our friends, Eric or, or, or John might be able to, you know, clarify the details, but basically, you know, I, I think that he was approached in doing the scores for 84 in Biolante and in 84, he had the very bizarre response of, I, I only want to write music for 50 meter monsters. He didn't like that Godzilla was bigger. <laughs> And then in Biolante, he was just like, uh, sure, you know, you can use my music, but don't mess with it too much. I don't want any crazy rock and roll renditions of it. Just don't do that. And they were like, okay. And then Sugiyama was like, 
here's electric guitars and and he was like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and so um, not only did they not keep his word, oh, goodbye, my homeland. Yeah, again, you, that could be seen as a dog whistle. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if Fukube was like, um, oh God. And then I think it was his granddaughter that was like, look, they're going to keep asking you and they're going to keep using your music. So just do it. And he was like, fine. (laughs) And so that is where you, he is roped back into the Godzilla franchise. At least I, at least I think I have most of that accurate. I don't know. That sounds accurate to me. So we can both be wrong together, but you're, (laughs) <laughs> that's what that's exactly what i remember bird okay patrick do I, you will have just, any... I will just mention really quickly um i do have an article on toe kingdom that debunks the whole i don't write music for 80 meter tall oh, okay monsters. okay uh, so uh just one little thing there but yeah where, in the where, 80s, ifukabe's uh ifukabe's focus had definitely shifted more towards you know his duties as an educator as the president of the tokyo college of music so uh yeah he wasn't really scoring movies really very much at all at this point i don't think even at all i could be wrong about that but uh yeah, but yeah, his ret- but yeah, his return to King Gator was definitely because yeah, they took because Sugiyama transformed his Godzilla theme into the famous Bio Wars <laughs> track from Violante, which he was not happy with, as he told Steve Rifle in an interview. And his I think it was his daughter who said, "You know, Dad, just take yeah. the next assignment so you can, so you can control yeah, how j- your music." Yeah, is just used. do it. And he was like, "Oh, <laughs> I guess you know what is that? Uh, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in." Um, yes. So the movie's over, okay, and and, Corleone, and, yes. and because uh, I don't know Sony are jerks or whatever. We normally we would be talking over the the ending credits, but <laughs> we they we can't. No. Um, so, uh, uh, but yeah, what? So um, I'm glad you brought up the thing about the '84 uh, movie, and you know, not wanting to write music for 80 meter monsters or or whatever, um, because that is something that I repeated on the '84 commentary that that we did on Tom's podcast, but. Um, so, so in your debunking, I mean, do you, do you happen to know where that originated or why that has been perpetrated through the years? Yes. Uh, so when I, I've always found that story kind of dubious, you know, it's, it sounded like, you know, like a, one of those apocryphal stories, like, yeah, you know, a nice story, but you know, probably not true. So I decided to do some homework and I found that the uh, the origins actually trace back to uh, Ed Gotchacheski's, um magazine, Japanese Giants. Come on, Ed. On Godzilla. <laughs> get it <laughs> oh, together. Let, let me get down to the de- get down to the details on this, though. <laughs> is that because uh, you know, Ed did an issue about 84 Godzilla when it first came out. And he mentioned that Ifukabe was, and I quote, rumored to have said that. He oh, said, so, there you go. To Ed's, to, to, Ed's cre- to Ed's credit, he used the word rumored. And so I asked Ed about that, like, no. Can you go into more detail about that? You know, and he said, "Well, I heard that from a uh, a friend I had in Japan." And so I asked him also, like, you know, what have you heard? You know, in the thirty plus years since then? And he said, "Well, as it happens, you know, on my recent trip to Japan, this was in like two thousand, I think it was two thousand seventeen or eighteen. Um, I ran into that into that friend who told me, and he said, oh, that was just a joke uh, pushed out by Ifukabe fans. It wasn't based well, on, on anything that he, that he was known to have said.'" There you go, people. If there's one thing we love doing on this podcast, it is myth busting. There you go. Ourself, so I, my myth, <laughs> yes, the myth that I uh, <laughs> probably handed down to a whole other generation of people um, has been officially busted. Um, that is, that is though why. Um, and you know, I mean, my sources that I was going back to at the time, 
uh, probably omitted the word rumor. And, and again, that is why we have to be careful, people. Everyone from your Joe Schmo on Wikipedia to people that podcast all the time, like Matt and I, we are all victims to it. Um, we had the embarrassing flub of interviewing a... Um, uh, Motokuni uh, Nakagawa, who played Monster X and stuff. Um, well, we didn't interview him, but we were at the All Monsters Attack convention where he was present, and uh, we asked a question about a character that he had played, allegedly, in the Sentai shows, and he said, I know that's what the internet says. I did not play that character. That character <laughs> was played by some other guy. And we were like, oh, whoops. So, you know, we all we all fall victim to it. But that is the danger, though, um, Ed did the right thing by saying it's rumored to be, but as time advances, it ends up like the old game of telephone where by the end, certain words are omitted. Uh, Like, by the time that got to, you know, the fifth, sixth book or whatever, magazine, whatever, that has told that story, that word, that very important word, rumor, is out of the equation. And, and that is why when I talked about um, the World War II sequences in this movie, I'd said, you know, I've seen it re- rumor, I've, I, I've seen it reported a lot of times, uh, you know, it's rumored that these scenes had made Ashiro Honda uncomfortable because I, 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 I have not to, seen like a direct quote from him or whatever. And so I, 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 I want to always be careful there and saying, you know, okay, I don't know one way or the other, but you know, if this is something that he felt, I would not be surprised. But don't take that yeah. as me saying that it's true. Um, anyway, that's Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. Um, I, uh, you know, over the years, this movie has kind of gained a lot of fans. Um, I, I think now it's probably one of the fan favorites of the Heisei series. But, you know, it, it is a little more... I say that, but the people that don't like it are a little more um, outspoken than people that don't like, like, I don't know, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla or whatever, just because there's all kinds of... The writing is messy, the thematics are messy. Um, Unless you have an education about the climate of Japan at the time that's reflected in the movie, it does have a sour nationalistic read that is very easy to get to. Um, time travel shenanigans, Dorats, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here that the people that don't like the movie, uh, really don't like it for. Um, but, you know, this is a movie I've always been fond of, and I, I have a nostalgic attachment to it because it's one of the ones that I got to feel like the cool kid. I mean, even though, I mean, when I was a kid, there was just, like, a few Godzilla toys and, you know, I wasn't picked on, but any anyone besides, like, my tiny group of friends... No one wanted to, everyone wanted to play, you know, Ninja Turtles or whatever. Um, uh, so, yeah, I have a nostalgic attachment because it was cool, especially as a kid, to be able to get these VHS tapes. It's like It was like this underground thing, and it's like no one, in, a lot of people in America can't see this, and, you know, you felt like the cool kid. So, and because of that, I have a, a particular nostalgia for the, the Heisei films. Um, especially as they were coming out, because once I'd seen this one in Mothra, I was caught up. So by the time Mechagodzilla was out in the gray market circuit, it was like, oh, the new one is finally out. And then that's how I was with Space Godzilla and especially Destroya, my God. Um, so I really like this movie still. Um, and uh, Kazuki Omori, I think, 
He really did, for better and worse, set the standard template of what the franchise would be from Biollante all the way through now. We're still seeing the influence of the stamp that he put on it. Um, so uh, this is a movie that I look back on fondly, and as an adult, um, knowing more about the uh, uh, the social commentary stuff in it, and especially now having Omori clear the air on some of it, um, it's a movie I, I, I always enjoyed, and I still have reasons to enjoy it as an adult, even though it's, you know, I can't say it's a good movie, but... It, it plays really well for me on the entertainment value, and um, it is a piece of camp. You know, some of those screenwriting hiccups, some of those wonky effects shots, the M11 chase, for me, there's an endearing quality to it. And a lot of my favorite movies aren't good movies, but I enjoy them because of a, a unique personality, or sometimes it's because of some of those imperfections. You know, this... I, <clears throat> In the overall scheme of the 35-whatever-Godzilla movies, this would probably place upper-middle for me, but it's a movie I still enjoy for the, all those reasons. Um, so uh, where, what are your guys' closing thoughts on this one? Uh, for me, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah is definitely a very problematic film, especially on the screenwriting level. Yep. But... It's definitely a film that I would argue in some ways is greater than the sum of its parts because, you know, at the very least, like, you know, as problematic as Emmy is, she's still kind of a memorable character. You know, Shindo is a memorable character. The movie has a lot of energy. And and you say it's campy, and I'd say part of that, you know, sometimes it's uh, not intentional, but in some type cases it is. I mean, the movie has a deliberate sense of humor with lots, some some slapstick and whatnot, so it's, it's not taking itself all that seriously all the time. So... I don't, so I, I'm not. I'm not, not going to. I wouldn't say it's a, a total co, uh, total cornball kind of film that is trying so hard to be serious and just you know isn't. But uh, so yeah, it, it's it's aware that it's not that it's not you know some kind of deep philosophical work <laughs> of art. And uh, at the same time, it's energetic. And again, the uh, the way that it tackles the bubble economy in in such a very direct manner makes this one of the most fascinating Godzilla films to think about. And that's something that I think is absolutely worth acknowledging. Yeah. Because, you know, we think we think of the again, we, we've all heard this before, but, you know, the general consensus about Godzilla films is from from people who don't watch these films is, yeah, you know, that first film, it was kind of thoughtful. After that, it was all stupid crap for kids. But, you know, even with a film like this, you can say, like, hey, you know, maybe it's not the greatest thing ever made. But there's some there's some thoughtful things that are going on that are worth you know looking at, examining and talking about. And, you know, and, and it can also serve as like you know, little time capsules of the era in which they were made. And so on that level, especially Godzilla versus King Ghidorah is one of my favorite Godzilla movies to think about. And on a personal level, yeah, I, I fully admit it's a very problematic movie on so many levels. But on a, on a totally subjective level, I still enjoy it just as I did when I was young. It's, it's a good time. And, you know, you, I also kind of sympathize with Omori's task here. You know, we're thinking about, okay, maybe why... Wasn't there, you know, more clarity with some of the stuff in the script? But he really was given, you know, we want you back. We want you to be, you know, have that kind of uh, social awareness you brought to Biolante, but you got to make it, like, for kids this time. So, I mean, that that's not an easy pill to swallow. Um, uh, anyway, so, Matt, in 2022, I mean, how do, I mean how, how do you feel about this movie all these years later? Um, I really like it. I 
Patrick actually stole exactly what I was going to say with, which is it is a hundred percent greater than the sum of its parts. Like my enjoyment of this film, uh, like it's, it's not a good movie, but I do think it's incredibly fun. Yeah. Um, It's a a damn good time. It really is. Yeah. Like it's, it's one of those movies, like I'm going to enjoy every, every single time that I watch it. And part of it is kind of like what you said, bird, we're like the, the M11 stuff is terrible. And yet like, I'm awesome. getting a kick out of it. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, so it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I actually, uh, it's probably my second or third favorite Heisei era film. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I hope, you know, one day, um, cause you know, the legendary movies, you know, they did, you know, I guess it's more of a homage, but they have their own, I guess, kind of version of Dr. Sarazawa. You know, eventually, if we ever get a a, a, a time travel uh, plot again, and they bring back the character of Emmy, um, this is just because I'm weird and, and sick. They should totally uh, do the thing, uh, like the Futurama episode, where Fry goes to meet like his great great grandma, and it turns out he's his own great great grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> Which this movie could this this movie was like was centimeters <laughs> away from going there. Yeah. Um, you know, I I really do I really uh, I really do <laughs> I want to give Omori benefit of the doubt, but I really do think that the whole revelation of uh, Terasao being her ancestor was some some that Omori threw in the last five minutes to create some some pseudo profundity for the story. I really don't think that he he thought that part through. I think he just threw it at the last minute to make the ending a little more punchy. That honestly might be the most baffling part about this movie, especially (laughs) because there's like this, there's this like sexual tension between them the whole time. And then, and and she (laughs) is like the one uh, perpetrating a lot of that. And then at the end, she's like, Oh, (laughs) you know, you're my grandpa. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Wait a second. (laughs) And she even said, like, you know, I never had had the chance to tell you. Yes, you did. You were hanging out with him for like, you know, three days. Yeah, you yeah, have opportunities yes. to say this. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that is all wild. Um, so uh, anyway, so that's Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. People, hopefully, uh, anyone who uh, has listened to this, you know, if you watched it with us. Or if you decide to go watch it after listening to this at a future time, um, it is a movie that I think is ripe for a reevaluation and a rediscussion um, because there's a lot of things in it that can get kind of uh, confusing thematically or just in its own crazy writing. Um, but that's Godzilla versus King Ghidra. Um, no, I, I wanted to do this as a commentary for a long time, even before Patrick. Even before we thought to ask Patrick, you know, I mean, a few years ago we talked about doing it with Trev because this is his favorite Godzilla movie, and he was like, "I love that movie, but I, I don't, I don't need to get all nerdy with you, you guys." Um, and Patrick was able to bring a whole lot of substance uh, to it, especially after his Omori research and all the bubble economy stuff. So, Patrick, thank you for joining us. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, we're, I'm super glad that we finally got to get you on here and um, it was, uh, it was, it was worth the wait. Cause I, I think that was a really fun and interesting discussion we had. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun for sure. All right. So uh, everyone at home, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.